Hey guys, how's it going? Scott Devine here again with another episode of the SBL podcast for you. And today we've got the one and only Mike Janish. I've been following Mike and what he's been doing for literally years. Actually, the first time I saw him live, I will remember for the rest of my life, he was playing upright. He's a great upright player. He's also an electric player, um, but he was playing upright and he literally blew my mind. It was like nothing else I've ever seen. <laughs> he was just amazing. He's played with, well, I'm just going to read a, a list of guys he's played with. It's like the who's who of jazz, right? It's like Gary Burton, Quincy Jones, George Garzone, Roy Hargrove, Joe Locke, Mark Turner, uh, Shirley Horn, Joe Lovano, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Clarence Penn, Kenny Weiner, Wheeler, uh, Lee Connett, Donnie McCaslin, Mike Marino, Gwilym Simcock, Ralph Alessi, Jeff Ballard, Jason Rebello, Aaron Parks, Martin Taylor, Kurt Elling. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you get the idea. He's, uh, he's, he's a really, really talented bass player. And, and he's been at it a long time. You know, he's, I think he's a couple of years younger than me. We're about the same age. Um, but he really is somebody to check out. And not only is he a great electric player, a great upright player, he also runs his own record label as well that we get into in this interview. So I know that you're going to really, you're going to really dig it. And I should also say that he's the bass teacher at the Royal Academy over here in the UK, which is kind of like the most prestigious music school to go to. And, uh, and he's the bass teacher there. So he really knows his stuff when it comes to education as well. And uh, I really do think you're going to like it. Before we get into the interview, I just want to say a huge thank you for everybody that um, entered in the giveaway. We'd had a huge giveaway in October. Um, it was it was just so fun doing it. We just released stuff each each week we were like adding new stuff into the pot we were also giving pedals away from Aguila for the entire month of October um so we had a real scream doing that and um, I actually don't know who the winner is because I'm recording this before the date that we drew the winner um so keep a look out for that <laughs> hopefully it was you and uh and if it's any if it's not you the good news is we're also going to be doing a really great giveaway in November as well so keep a look out for that make sure that you subscribed over over at scottsbasslessons.com to our email list so you get notified when we do release that uh, that giveaway. Now, again, I just want to say a huge thank, thank you to all the interest we're getting about the rebuild of Scott's Bass Lessons as well. As I said last week, we've, we're on this seven month seven month journey of rebuilding, completely restructuring the Scott's Bass Lessons platform, uh, the website, the design, uh, the internals of it, how it works. And when we do release it, it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. I know so many Academy members are going to be blown away. If you're not an Academy member, you want to get in on the action right now because as soon as we do switch to that new site, the annual enrollment price is going to be going up. So there's no better time to enroll. And just to sweeten the deal for you as well, I'm going to give you access to a special 30-day free trial. So you can take the entire Academy for a, a test drive just to see if it's for you for a full 30 days with absolutely no risk and if you don't find it's for you and you know i'll be disappointed if you not if you don't find it's for you but i really do think it will be for you but if you find it's not for you you can cancel your account within the 30 days in the click of two buttons you don't even need to email me and you'll be able to cancel your account and you won't be billed one cent so go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash 30 day so that's three zero day and 
that there you can access the 30-day free trial. You won't find it anywhere on the website at all, so you've got to go to that special URL if you want to get that 30-day free trial. Okay, so it's scottsbaselessons.com forward slash 3030day, D-A-Y, and then you'll get in on the action. And guys, if you do join the academy, shoot me a PS in the forum and just say hi, I joined, you know, I was into the into the uh, the podcast and you know you talked me into it <laughs> it'd be wicked absolutely wicked to hear from you now if you're listening to the podcast on itunes i'll send you all of my base love if you subscribe and leave a review as that really helps us get the word out about these interviews guys and i really think there's so much to be learned from listening to great bass players such as the guests that we have on the show and if you're listening to this anywhere else other than scottsbasslessons.com, make sure you shoot over to the site and check out the show notes for this episode as I've put some fantastic videos up. Now, if you're completely new to Scott's Bass Lessons, go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit. Okay, scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit. I've put some really cool video resources that you can download on there and check out, like a bass buyer's guide, We've got um, a video where I talk about how to get gigs, great gigs, wherever you are in the world. So if you're moving to a new city or you're trying to break into the scene where you are, I'll give you some great tips for that. We've got a Understanding the Modes mini course. We've got a backing track library. There's loads of stuff in there. It's totally free for you to download. Just go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit. And also, remember, if you're an Academy member over at scottsbasslessons.com, you can watch the entire video version of this interview as well, okay? We film the entire thing, as we do with all our podcasts, we film all of them. And if you're not already an Academy member, just go and check it out over at scottsbasslessons.com. In a nutshell, it's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world. The step-by-step courses, live seminars every week, the largest online bass educational community in the world. And those guys are so, so supportive and tons more, the whole nine yards. And we have a completely free 14-day trial for you as well. So you can take it for a test drive just to see if it's for you. And if you find it isn't, no sweat, you can cancel your account within the click of two buttons. Now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hey guys, how's it going? I am here back with another episode of the SBL podcast and I've got the amazing Mike Janish on with us, um, who I first heard playing with a fantastic saxophone player called George Garzone. I don't know, can you remember that gig? George Garzone, yeah. Where was it? It was in Leeds, it was up in Leeds, yeah. Yeah. But you've played with so many people, you're an amazing upright player. Probably, like I say, when I when I talk to people, I'm just like Mike Janish is, is like one of the best upright players I've ever seen in my life. I think you're utterly <laughs> ferocious, and I've seen you. I haven't seen you in the flesh playing electric, but you're an amazing electric player. There's like the videos of you um, gigging with your band on YouTube, and I'll hook people up on this page that, so they can check it out. Um, but Mike, like you know, and on top of that, sorry, I should say that you run your own record label as well that we've been talking about. You've got some crazy stuff going on with that. But if we rewind the, rewind the clock back, I really want to find out how you actually just got into bass in the first place. Did you come from a musical family and all that? You know, let us know all, you know, all the bits and bobs there is to know. I I grew up in, um, Ellsworth, Wisconsin. Uh, and, uh, it's actually only about 45 minutes east of Minneapolis, St. Paul, on the other side of the Mississippi River. And um, my mom and dad weren't musicians, but my mom had a massive uh, vinyl collection of 
and just great, great taste in music. Mostly Motown. And when I go back, it's 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 just it's it's like Bootsy Collins, James Jamerson, all these great bass players in her collection. So I was kind of growing up constantly listening to bass without even realizing it. Yeah. But I got into piano when I was four because she was taking piano lessons. We had a piano at the house uh, just as a hobby, and I got so interested in it. I kind of she thought, well, he's more into it than me, so let's switch. I'll stop taking lessons and he'll take lessons. And so I got into piano in that way. And then I ended up playing piano for 10 years, classical uh, with lessons and all that. But then when I was about 10 years old, I um, uh, was offered a chance to play in the, the wind ensemble or the wind band, whatever they call it. And yeah. the, there was, I wanted to play guitar, six string guitar. That was what I always wanted to play. But they didn't have that on offer, so they said, you can play kind of a guitar, it's this, it's only got four strings, you know, and I was, I was like, okay, that looks cool, yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of how it, it was kind of a fluke like that, and then um, I started taking lessons, and, and uh, that's how I got into it, basically. And, and did you, like, we even when you were like a really young kid, was there any aspirations of being, oh, I want to do this for a career? Or did you want to be like a fireman, like, you know, a hundred other kids out there, like I wanted to be? Um, I think there was, there was always a lot of different ideas for what I was going to be going, in, going around in my head. Because I've always had a lot of different interests. Uh, I, do, I do think um, pretty, pretty young, uh, I had a, I had a great, a, a great uh, teacher named Harvey Helpus. Um, who was still to this day one of the best uh, educators I've ever seen in terms of he could take a group of kids and just transform them into this band, even though they probably didn't know anything about the music they were playing. Yeah. Really inspirational teacher, just one of, one of a kind uh, guys. And um, he would hit me to certain uh, names in, um, uh, well, it was mostly jazz because we had a jazz band there, a great uh, jazz program. We were kind of a powerhouse in our in our own way. We would go to all the competitions and stuff. And a town of like twenty five hundred people, we would always win first place at the big band competition. So big band was his kind of specialty. Yeah. So in that world, he would show me a lot of different musics, and he would he got me uh, some really nice faith methodology books back in the day. The, the real famous ones. Uh, one was by Rufus Reed the evolving basis yeah, and this yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I always remember we'd kind of dip into that and uh, uh, I didn't really know what it was all about, but he'd get me some tapes, tapes, by the way, um, <laughs> of uh, mixtapes, basically, back mixed when mixtapes actually meant something. You used to, you used to make you mixtapes, yeah. Yeah, so they were actually tapes with kind of uh, uh, a bunch of different bass players on it. And one of his students, Karen Quinn, who ended up being a teacher of mine uh, down the road, she would give me some mixtapes because she saw that I had a, interest in it so I would listen to these things and it would uh, I remember it was um, uh, Dave Holland and it was all the greats a lot of Mingus yeah um, it was actually more more double bass players than electric even though I had probably never even seen a, a, a double bass in my life uh, but then there was the Jocko uh, mixtape I remember and that kind of that kind of really made me inspired of course as now I'm starting to sound like everyone else on planet earth but that, that kind of made me really take it serious. And um, I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to get into this uh, really in a, in a big way. But, you know, 
that was for a year, and then I would kind of get back into other things. And so I guess um, it was, uh, yeah, it was in and out of kind of. It was of always point. there type of thing, yeah. And how, how old were you at this point? <coughs> well, that was like in my early teens. So I you mean, were, you've been into jazz for, for, for like ever. Yeah, it's, I've always been a musician. So, uh, and I, you know, I was, it was kind of very natural for me. Um, my, my hearing is, is very, it was always very, it was um, very easy for me to pick up music fast. Uh, I, I would learn, like, you know, I, I was kind of the parlor trick in my house because they, my parents discovered, I didn't even really realize what, it, what perfect pitch meant, but uh, I would tell my mom she was playing the wrong notes and when I was four, but I didn't know the note names. So then my dad realized I could be in another room and he could play a few keys and then I could come up and play those keys. So he started betting his friends, like, I bet you can play five, <laughs> yeah, I bet you $20 that um, my kid will put him in, in the other room and you play five notes anywhere on the piano, he'll come in and play it. So that was kind of like a trick when they'd have friends, uh, a little extra money maker. So, um, that was kind. Of, it was kind of natural for me to be a musician, I guess, uh, based on those kind of gifts that I had, without any um, struggle. You know, and, and when did you sort of say? So obviously, you did the whole sort of like jazz band thing at school. Yeah. Like when did you actually decide that you were going to follow that career path? Yeah, this is kind of a. It's not. It's an unorthodox sort of trajectory into being a. a, a you know, a, a full-time musician. I actually quit playing music when I was 17 because I was actually really burnt out with it. And I had some uh, personal things happen in my family. I had a family band and, and my my younger brother, unfortunately, died in a, an accident. And that kind of, I kind of got out of um, music because I got really good at sports sports including American football and track and field and yeah. so I started getting scholarship offers um, from pretty decent universities for that kind of thing and I think I just took my aggression looking back at it you know I had done the solo ensemble for years where you prepare a piece go and do it and I didn't really have at this point in high school have anyone kind of directing me uh, I mean I, Harvey and, and another teacher of mine Lisa she would uh, they were telling me like you know you're gonna have to make a decision here yeah. And I was kind of like, well, I'm not sure what I want to do. I was also getting a lot of offers to go all over the United States to play music, you know. So that it was kind of a, a weird time for me. And I guess I fell into uh, the sports thing because it was more of a fun, you know, group kind of thing. And yeah. Yeah. I was a little bit burnt out with music because I had always done music. And being from Ellsworth, I guess, um, I didn't realize – what was so out there, um, unfortunately. Uh, it might have taken the right person at the right time. Um, I mean, but I did I did go to some pretty incredible summer camps. But for whatever reason, I got out of it for a few years, went to school and did a degree in history in southern Minnesota wow. and didn't touch the bass for like a couple years. Really? Um, not and, at all? Yeah, didn't touch the bass at all. And, and I remember not really missing it. I got so swallowed up in that. Uh, American uh, university experience, yeah. experience, you know, and that was a blast. You know, I had a lot of fun. Went all over the states, uh, running and uh, track and field events. Uh, very exciting. And then I got injured when I was like twenty, uh, halfway through my when I was twenty, uh, injured very badly in my left leg, and um, I was sort of 
walking around on crutches feeling sorry for myself and I walked by the fine arts building of this university I was at and realized I heard this guy practicing on drums and I was like wow gosh man, maybe I could get the bass out again you know I'm feeling a little <laughs> lost here because it was clear that my collegiate uh, sports career was over at that point yeah so um uh and and that was kind of a good thing so then I went in and talked to this guy and he's like yeah bring your bass down so I drove home on the weekend brought my I had a little red pv four string and we jammed and it was like a light switch went off in my head and, and it was just insane amounts of uh um dedication at that point i literally stacked my credits finished my degree transferred schools locked myself up in an attic for an entire summer and uh got the double bass i dabbled with the double bass when i was in a teenager yeah but it's like when i was 21 and the bug hit me incredibly hardcore at that point that fanatical stage that we all go through it hit me when i was about 21 you know and why, and then, why did you pick up it. the upright why did you pick up the upright uh i saw a, an amazing bass player named ronald elvenu playing at a club at this in this place called mankato where i was going to school and it was it wasn't this sort of pressure you can't play jazz if you don't play electric you know you can't play jazz as an electric player and all this stuff it, this it's just it was one of those you know life defining moments where i saw this guy play a beautiful version of donna lee on the double bass he took the the melody yeah and it wasn't all too fast so it wasn't this big chops display but I, you know you could hear the, the the woody earthy tone of the entire instrument and that just made me really interested in the double bass at that point. Uh, it was just a great gig. I talked to him afterwards and found out he lived in New York for years and, and he was amazing. And He got me uh, playing the double bass. I went up to Minneapolis and took lessons with him very regularly and he, he really got me into shape. And um, uh, you know, At that point, I then sent a tape to a, a university um, when I was telling you before this, this, this lady Karen Quinn, who was a, a student of my first teacher, yeah. she was sending me mixtapes. You know, she was the head of the jazz department here uh, for the bass program, and she got me there. It's a great school, the Cross University of Wisconsin, and um, I went there for about a year and a half with high hopes of taking everything to New York. You know, keep moving east and all that. Yeah, it really just kind of got back into the music thing there. Met some great people. Had a blast of a time there, just just shedding and shedding and like to the point where I was almost going crazy, literally hours and hours. I still have the the logs. It was literally sun up to sundown on both. I was going to say, was it just like all day, all day? It was mental. Like I remember one time I had this regime where uh, in the summertime when I wasn't taking classes that I would I would stay and I had this big attic loft space and um, I would stay there till from first thing in the morning I would practice all day from Sunday until Thursday, and then I would allow myself to go out. And I remember all the, <laughs> all the other musicians were like, you know, you should really, you know, come out and play with some people and, you know, just, like, socially get out of this place, you know, that, yeah, that yeah. attic. It's not good for you. And I remember one time we were hanging. It was the Thursday when I let myself out, and I was kind of feeling woozy, you know. <laughs> I, I felt awkward socially, and, and I was like, okay, I think I, yeah, I got to rejoin humanity here. But I'm, I'm glad I did it because it was... It was what I needed, and I, you know, when I decide to do something, I go at it 100%. So I, I needed those six months of just insane fanaticism with just learning raw 
uh, fundamentals um, with time and, and harmony concepts and scales and all this kind of stuff. And that, that was, I mean, I wouldn't recommend what I did to anybody. But uh, I've read art other articles of when, when people get hit with the bug, no matter what music it is, what instrument, you know. I think, I think and it's a good thing you do that when you're younger. Uh, a lot of people I know did this when they're 13, 14. That's why I'm a little bit uh, later, you know, I did this a little later in life, but you can, you can also, I think because I was, you know, more of a developed mentally kind of person and stuff and I knew what I wanted and I kind of had this background in sort of real dedicated, you know, high level sports, I could apply that, those kind of skills into really figuring out what I needed to do and learning things very fast. So that yeah, worked yeah. for me. And who, who was your teacher at the time? Were they giving you the materials to learn or were you getting this from books? Because obviously it's pre-internet, pre right? So there was yeah. no... So I was, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was, I mean, it was a mixture of things. It was, it was at the university there. I was buying every book on planet Earth I could find that had anything to do with the base. Um, and uh, I, was, I was driving, you know, nine, ten hours at a, at a pop to go uh, take lessons with people, uh, you know, if they were in Indianapolis or Chicago, I was going all over the place, you know, trying to find people to just to take one. Whenever someone would come through Minneapolis, I'd go up to the Dakota and watch them play. Saw a lot of great bands there. Remember the first time I saw Vishay Cohen play there, it blew my mind, you know, um, a <laughs> yeah, lot, yeah. lot, lot of Ron Carter, uh, Christian McBride, a um, lot of different people. Ray Brown, I went and saw many times. So I was going, seeing a lot of live people. Um, uh, and, and on electric bass. Uh, Were you playing electric bass at this point, or do you? I mean, electric bass is the problem with uh, when you start playing double bass as an electric player is you get pigeonholed as a double bass player. Yeah. And so, especially if you're, because I grew up playing, you know, all that funky stuff, and and then you can transfer that to the double bass. So then, you know, someone hears you being a little funky on the double bass. Well, now that's it. They're, they're, they want you to play funk on a double bass, you know, so, <laughs> and uh, when, after this, the school, I, I went out to Berkeley, and then I, I did a degree in double bass performance, because I really wanted to get that together, I can't, I really fell in love with it, but the, through the whole time, I've, I've, you know, since I was 21, I've constantly been shedding the electric, it's more, the electric for me is kind of my home, it's, it's, it, it feels, it feels like my old friend, you know, like, from way back when I was a kid, it's the thing I feel most comfortable with, even to today. Yeah, it's my experimenting table because you know, like technically, there's so many things you can kind of work out, and then if you if you're lucky enough, you can transfer certain aspects of it to the double bass. Uh, cer certainly, certain certain shapes and stuff work around it. Um, but yeah, it just kind of broadens my uh, it broadens me as a musician to work things out in the electric uh, because it's. It's, uh, it's, it's physically, uh, on, in some levels, it's physically easier to play, I guess. And for yeah, me, it's just, yeah. it just feels like a, naturally, it's my, yeah, it's how I can search. I do a lot of compositions on the electric bass, too, playing melodies. And, yeah, it's just fun. I, I've always loved it, you know. It, it but probably, I feels guess, like guess how, how, probably feels like home to you because you started yeah, off like it, you know. That's the best way to describe it. I mean, it, with my playing career, there was a time where I kind of didn't even through the I barely played it live, um, but I was always practicing it, you know. Yeah. And I didn't really, I didn't that really didn't bother me too much because I was really in, I was really having fun playing double bass all over the place. 
but it's been like the last five years or so where I was like, you know what, I really need to start playing this more and and uh, putting it out there more. And so uh, it's been it's been featured on all my own albums and and uh, it's always there on, in my own band. Um, and uh, but I would say like when other people call me, it's it's out of the entire year I play about. Uh, 65% double bass and then the rest yeah. electric for, for actually paid sideman session type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you went to Berkeley, was it to focus on the upright or was it? Uh, yeah, it was, it was just to get out east and see what happened. And luckily, um, Berkeley um, uh, gave me a great scholarship and all that. So I went out there. Uh, I had to choose one or the other, and because I felt more confident on electric, I just said, "Okay, well, let's do double bass performance." But I also did my my my, my degree was actually music business because um, they had they had a good music business department there, and I was interested in learning about music business, um, which has actually come in handy. But but yeah. uh, it was double it was music business major with a double bass uh, jazz double bass performance. And what was and the ex- was- what was the experience like when you got out there? Because were you thinking to yourself? <laughs> Were you it wondering was, uh, what it's like? Like, oh, out east, it's going to be amazing. All the great players, and you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when I went to Berkeley, uh, first of all, I realized that there were everybody. Uh, well, because I was a little older, and I I had a lot of music in my background. They have this rating system at Berkeley, and uh, I got really good high rates and I had all these general education requirements done from being at you know normal university so I had done a degree I'd been in college I was more mature than you know someone fresh off out of high school going to Berkeley and stuff from the states anyway and so I went there and I I had a a focus of what I wanted to do and uh, but it was it was I was really blown away by you know the, the the top level at the school I didn't realize um I thought I had an idea but I didn't realize just how good people my age and even younger than me could be yeah, uh, yeah. that went to these powerhouse uh, high schools where it's like the whole focus is farming kids from the entire state of Texas. And like, you know, and, uh, these kids are like, to me, they seem like fully developed conceptual musicians by the time they were 20, you know, yeah, it was pretty yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the guys that I was there with are, you know, global names now um kendrick scott on drums he 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 was incredible to 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 hear him play uh walter smith the third still a friend of mine that we 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 still play well i haven't played for a while but he's been on one of my albums um great saxophone player Uh, patrick cornelius he's a really good friend of mine we've been playing touring uh, over the years i mean the, the one thing about berkeley they tell you when you get there is that you know you're going to meet people here that you're going to play with the rest of your life and that that's very true yeah. And and there's always that kind of like in club thing where you you can be in a city and be like yo you know I you know I'm, I'm in town and stuff I see you were at Berkeley at this period and there's a kind of connection right there yeah, yeah 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 but it was cool Berkeley was great for me because I basically because I had all these other uh, general education requirements done all I did there was a couple of years of music classes and tons of ensembles yeah. like the, the the really great ensembles that are off on offer there I, I really took that. Uh, um, was was what I got out of it was the the actual playing like I would skip harmony class to just do a jam session yeah, so I was, play, yeah. I was playing just nonstop and that's kind of all I wanted there you know I, I had the, the, the sort of classes and stuff like this we have to learn baroque harmony and then counterpoint and all this kind of stuff and I I didn't actually do as well as I should have 
and, and all that kind of stuff. And there's there's some pr- stuff I probably should have paid more attention to. But all I wanted to do was get prepared for New York. You know, yeah, learn as many tunes as I could and and uh, get my butt kicked by guys and um, started working quite a bit in the local scene yeah. around town. And there were some great uh, spots to, to there's I mean there's this, the notorious place there is Wally's. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. At the time, Darren Barrett was there, and uh, he uh, he gave me one of my first serious uh, little spots when, the, when the, the regular bass player who was doing it had to go to Europe on tour for an entire summer. So I ended up subbing quite a bit, and I tell you that was like that was one of the biggest eye openers because it was all like the top level Berkeley guys there, and um, they were going for it. And I was musically, I had never been in that situation before in my life and it really did sink or uh, swim it, right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean uh, the first couple times it was so exciting you know uh, and then i went once once that sort of excitement went over and you realize like wow there's there's levels of depth here that i've never experienced before with these guys and um uh you know i would just kind of go home after all these sets because they're long sets there just kind of stare at the ceiling and process and you know, <laughs> What I, just happened? I, I actually, nowhere near these guys. You know what I mean? But that was a great experience because that was that was my biggest, you know, what what we say, biggest ass kick, first major ass kicking in in in, in being a sort of a player. You know, and, and did, it's, it's, did you uh, find it inspirational or yeah. off putting? Because I suppose, like, depending on your personality type, some people might find that off putting. Some people might like the challenge. Especially this club, you know, Wally's. It's it's known for. <laughs> Uh, turning people off, you know, because people would get vibes so hard if they couldn't play. You know, yeah. the, the jazz has a sort of machismo thing in the in the history. Like, if you don't play well enough and you get up at a jam session, you know, that, that you can just get ridiculed off the stage or vibed hard off the stage. So it has, it has. I've never really dug that. I mean, even as an American, I never did it myself. I mean, I'm all into the thing where you know, let, letting someone come up and have have their piece. You know, if they're if they're maybe not at the level, it's like, okay, cool. Well, you had your little say now, maybe, maybe pay attention here and get better and then come back in a little while and you're yeah. better. But I don't, I don't think you should really hard, like hard vibe someone to like turn them off from music because everyone's <laughs> yeah. at a certain level. And the thing is, it's like w- w- one thing that uh, this great uh, uh, bass player that I have teach here at Berkeley told me was, you know, he, you know, I would talk to him about these instances where kind of older guys on the, greater Boston scene would vibe me or stuff if I wasn't, you know, cutting it or if they, they just didn't think I was quite there or whatever. And he's like, you just wait, you know, you keep working hard. One day you're going to be, you're going to be at their same level or even better. And then, you know, you can vibe them on a gig. You know? <laughs> and it's true. It's like, as you get older and older and more, you've checked out more music and practice more and just live life more and put more of your emotion into music and get over your insecurities. Then you start listening back and you're like, actually, yeah, these guys weren't as good as I remember, but you know, not in the case of the guys at Wally's, but a lot of the, a lot of that just growing up in general, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, but yeah, certainly Wally's in Berkeley. Um, that was a massive eye opener. In fact, after Berkeley, I kind of need a little break just from the whole school thing. So I went back to the Midwest uh, for a summer and just kind of practiced what I wanted to. And um, with, then, with the intention of moving to New York, right? Yeah, then I went to New York, and I was kind of uh, the, the very cliche sort of striving and starving kind of musician, 
just going into as many places and seeing people. And then that, that experience kind of was like more than Berkeley. Cause once again, I was like, Oh my, yeah, it's, it really hit you. Yeah. It's, it's I, everybody, everybody is incredible here. There's guys here, gals here that I've never heard of. Uh, and they've been here 30 years and they're just insane. You know, like not even like the technical abilities, just, just how deep and how much they've thought about music and played music and stuff like that. Um, so then I went into this big kind of with a better, more focused energy and mindset. I went into this kind of uh, shedding period again, yeah. um, which was really nice. And once again, it was kind of this not so much applying myself out on the scene. It was more like uh, research. I would go and I would go to Fat Cat and watch watch Seamus Blake play or or up to smoke. I'd go to you see I've never I've never been like just focused on the fifty five bar scene or I like all of it. So yeah, I'd go yeah. see the free guys, I'd see the Bob guys. I've always been like that as a player, you know. Um and uh and so I, I was just like learning the songs they would like and all this kind of stuff. But then then another thing just happened out of Clear Blue. I met my uh, met a, a woman from uh, Surrey, from Epsom Surrey, where I now live. <laughs> I was, was going to interject into the conversation that how did you end up in the UK? Yeah, and so then all after all that effort and and uh, dreaming and and you know back in the Midwest just dreaming about going to New York and spending my life there, being a musician, I came over to uh, the UK. And just to visit her, you know, after we we, uh, we we got close in the states, and I came over to visit her, um, and so I thought after a, after doing the vacation, the holiday thing for a little while, I, I decided to go to the jazz cafe because they kind of had a they had a jam session there. So I went to the jazz cafe, and there there was uh, some guys that I still play with the, doing the gig there. But the the thing that happened out of the clear blue was there was a manager. Of, a, of an act that just got signed to, uh, I think it was Universal at the time, and they were looking for an electric and a double player who you know could double <laughs> equally. Yeah. And it just so happened that the bass player there had two bass, both those basses. So I ended up jamming on both at this jam session. Yeah. And she offered me like a gig and a work permit right right in the spot. So I did right. that. I did that band for like six or eight months until it got unsigned, unfortunately. You know these startup bands, like these these big record companies will sign you and try it out. If they don't yeah, feel yeah. if it's going the way they want, they just it's like next thing you know, oh, all that work uh, for next year, it's gone. Bye. You know, so that was that <laughs> thing. But it, it got me on the, it got me over the into this this the the legal machine of kind of getting your your papers and stuff. But then I ended up getting married to Sarah, you know, and so and now here we are, and I'm fully I've been fully based here for. Oh gosh, since 2005 for the most part. 2006 officially with the paperwork, but yeah. So and then now I, I spend my time, you know, just doing my thing here and uh, having a blast. How know? did you get into the scene here? Like you landed, you did that band, then so, obviously not in the band. Then how do you get kind? Of, how do you interject yourself into that scene? Yeah. So uh, I guess I did it. Uh, well, I, I saw a great. Uh, workshop at the IAJE. This this is a now defunct uh, organization um, that, that was really big. It had an annual com conference, uh, International Associ Association of Jazz Educators. I saw a Ray Brown workshop there, and he said, you know, if you're if you're a bass player getting out onto the scene, the best 
the best asset you can have is strong time, a good vibe, both on and off stage, and also know a lot of repertoire, no matter what kind of music it is. Yeah. And so if it's jazz, you got to know tunes. Because people want from bass, but they don't care how fast you can play, what what you know, superimposing altered scale you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're never going to call you for to be a soloist, you know, especially if you're playing double bass. I mean, have you ever heard of any? I mean, yeah, Edgar Meyer, something. He's hired by you know Philharmonic orchestras to be the chief soloist. I can't, yeah. I can't imagine. Anyone go? Yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna start a quintet, a jazz quintet. And I'm gonna hire that bass player because I like his soloing. I mean, <laughs> it's really got to have your fundamentals together. That's that was the point he took home. So I took that really serious, and I went and I Ray was an idol of mine. Both his bass lines, his the the the, the steam engine type of feel he had when he played bass, and his uh, the way he crafted his bass lines. I mean, everyone says this about Ray. You can sit and listen to his lines all day. Just like Paul Jackson on Electric, it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. there was another band playing. Sorry, it's just like, you know, it's so infectious to listen yeah. to their bass line. So, uh, I went pretty mental uh, at Berkeley, learning standards um, as many as I could. So then, the point of all that is when I hit the London scene, um, I kind of hit the scene that uh, I, I looked at it practically. Uh, it wasn't so much about me and my concept and starting my own band and finding the musicians to do my mo band. It was more like, man, I've learned, I've moved to another country here, uh, which was, by the way, like per, on a personal level, a massive eye-opener as a, just as a human being. So even though we sort of speak the same language, I know we've kind of bastardized it a little bit. But, um, <laughs> you know, that was a big, you know, really learn yourself, who you are when you move to another country. And also, being from the States, you know, it's you don't really learn too much about the cultures of other countries, as as they all say. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know we don't get the, hardly any news. You get a little tidbit, but it's always very slanted anyway. So uh, it was just a, I was like, it really sunk in. Like, wow, I'm in a whole other country. So so for me, it was about you know I wasn't a kid anymore, and I was getting serious with Sarah. And I had to I had to work, you know. It was, that was what it was about. It was getting work and starting to earn. And at that time, the pound was two to one to the dollar. So, you know, it was expensive. London's a very expensive city, still is. So I had to, I had to get out there and let people know that, you know, uh, at, the, at the time, I, this is how I can play. And I know a lot of songs. I kind of took that Ray Brown thing and just went with it. And I think that's, that was the first scene. It was the more straight ahead type standard type gigs and all that kind of stuff. And I did, you know, I've done every type of gig there's ever been known, I think, to man uh, at this point in my career. And, and yeah, I, I got, I got some, I, I was living right in central London there and uh, right, right in Bayswater. And uh, oh, yeah. uh, <clears throat> I got a few residencies that were playing standards and stuff. And then through that, I got to meet Jim Mullen. There was a, there was a, there was a, Dover Street Wine Bar, which has been sold now, but there was a nice jazz uh, standard set before the the late night sort of funk band, and everyone would dance and all that stuff. So we would play standard for like two hours, and um, it was always double bass. This one saxophone player, Brian Hitterden, it was his gig, and then he would always have a, a, a guitar player, and it was always great guitarists. So I had Phil Robson, uh, Nigel Price, Jim Mullen, 
And man, that was incredible. I did that for like two years and once or twice or three times a week sometimes when oh, I was really? didn't pay like, gigs. Yeah. I learned a million tunes at that. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, like Jim Mullen is a stickler for the original harmony. So I, I'm playing on a gig, you know, thinking I got this tune the right way and he's screaming at me, not those changes. Haven't you ever heard the 1934 version? And then once again, you think, <laughs> oh, I've heard all these tunes and I actually don't know them at all. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. So I guess that that's kind of how I I went to a lot of jam sessions. I've always I, I, it was I think I think uh, that was a big thing. You know, whenever you go to a jam session and you're not a vibey jerk, basically, there's can always be a great something you can take out of it. Whether it's you know what I don't like this jam session, but now I you know I know I don't have to come back here again. Yeah. yeah. Or or you know what that tenor player was really great. Let me meet him or her and and. Uh, do some jamming during the day with them. Maybe that'll lead to some. So there, there's always jam sessions are what they are. You know, they're they can be a bit boring. They can be a bit stupid, and they can be really fun too. They can be really vibey and have a, have a great feel. Depends who's running them, but yeah, there was and there's always there's always a jam session somewhere in London. I don't really have time to go uh, to sessions now anymore. There's one at Ronnie's that I'll dip into every once in a while if so and so's playing. Um, but I guess I don't go out looking for work like that anymore i'm in a different phase now but when you're first starting out it's a great way because you're, you're meeting like-minded musicians from all over the world in a place like london or new york and they're all coming into the city and that's where they go so you're going to meet people you know Absolutely. and be, i would do it every single night i would do it if i had a gig and i go to a session afterwards yeah. you got to be in people's faces they got to know you know that you're they there know you, that you're there yeah you got to know you're there yeah. they got to know you're there otherwise Know obviously, you teach at the Royal Academy as well now, don't you? Was it just sort of like a natural progression? You met all the guys and, you know, and then yeah. the Royal Academy were looking for a bass teacher and they were like, you know, the funny Mike. Thing, yeah, the funny, funny thing about that is I've always taught. I used to teach piano, uh, guitar. I, I, I taught beginner trombone. I played trombone in the marching band in high school. So I've always taught and um, I was always felt, I've always felt natural teaching. Uh, it's something that I enjoy. It's a, I mean, as you know, it's like, a, you, you know, to, to give a solid lesson, you got, you got to make sure you know what you're talking about, you know, yeah. and, and be able to back it up. So it, it keeps you, it keeps your skills up, you know, and um, uh, you got to be accountable for what you say, basically is what I'm saying. And so when I first got to town, I sent my resume, you know, very flash resume, even with nice paper, uh, bought some nice paper and snappy and I gave the whole Berkeley resume and everything I'd done and I sent it out to all the universities in, in, in the UK and some in France, stuff like that. And most of them got back to me in a, with a really nice letter saying, thank you, we've received that, uh, yeah. take care, you know. And uh, looking back at it now, I realized that, you know, I, I wasn't established at all and that was, that was, it was way too early to do any of that. So then it, it was like through time, I guess, establishing myself on the scene as a player and a composer and a band leader and all that kind of stuff that, uh, and maybe, and maybe also through, uh, the, the students who would come to me privately and then go to the university and, and say, you know what, it would be great if we could get him here. Yeah, that yeah. It was through recommendations of the students. Then I started teaching, um, at Trinity and Royal Academy. And now, now I've been doing that for quite a few years now. Um, and then, and, I started out doing ensembles, but I couldn't make it work with my schedule because you have to be like every Tuesday at seven o'clock. It didn't work out for me, but now I just 
mostly do uh, one of, mo- mostly do one on ones with the odd uh, sort of intense week of workshops with bands. Um, yes, one on ones, but also with saxophone players, with drummers. There's all sorts of things that people can get out of uh, taking lessons with other instruments than their own. Yeah, I used yeah. to do that too. Yeah. I'd get saxophone lessons. I had lessons with George Garzon back at Berkeley. He's yeah, yeah. scared. What's some of the, because obviously you sort of like, you see a lot of students, what's some of the common mistakes or, you know, things that you've, com- common things that you see in students where they're maybe missing out or overlooking things? Is there any, could you speak to that? Yeah, so the thing is, is in terms of students I've had in my life, like, there's a lot of things you can say, but it, with respect to the like the actual Royal Academy and Trinity, a lot of times they come at, at an incredibly high level because yeah. you know they've been chosen and they've gone through the application process. So um, I guess in that context, most of it is you know yeah. There's always some come and they have amazing Paul Chambers language, or they've got insane chops on the electric bass and stuff like that. But they might not be able to play a bass line, you know, like a slow, groovy bass line for 15 minutes straight without doing a fill. Just yeah, to have yeah. the maturity. Yeah, it's, it's mostly mature concepts kind of things. You know, a lot of people come with great technique. There might be some things that, you know, I as a player look at them and go, oof, you know, that might hurt. You might want to think about doing this. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that frees my hand up, and now my wrist doesn't hurt. Uh, a lot of it is just uh, self-confidence things. You know, it's like some, some, of, some of the kids, it's like, uh, kids, I guess they're young adults, but they'll have, they'll have, in terms of just fierce technique, they'll have as much technique, honestly, as they probably ever need for the rest of their life, like the raw speed at which they can play and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But I try and, try and teach more about nuance. I, there's that great... Uh, quote that uh, it's like the the um, the end result of technique is not speed it's it's nuance you know the the sort of the the end zone the, the goal the goal of the end goal of um, technique is not speed or uh, virtuosity it's it's actually to play with nuance so yeah. we we work on I I, I kind of let that's something that you know I'm always working on because I was a technique freak too on both instruments so. I'm always, you know, and then I heard myself uh, on recordings and it's like, yeah, I'm playing fast, but there's no real inflection in any of those notes. I sound like a machine gun. Yeah. It's like, where's, where's, the, where's the nuance, you know? What, how can I put more personality into the, the instrument? And so uh, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing I think at that level which comes up the most. And then there's, yeah, sometimes, sometimes you get these really advanced students that don't know any tunes, so you just... Well, why don't we learn some tunes? Yeah. I try to find out because uh, it's—I I don't want to like date myself, but it, it maybe it's just the universities here. They have a more diverse uh, draw of students, but you get some kids who are—they're not—they're not even interested in playing jazz per se, but they know that they want to learn some things about harmony. So they've gotten themselves to a certain level, so they get into these universities and they're really talented. But they've got to probably go off and do production. Uh, something like that, and double bass or electric bass just happens to be the instrument they've chosen. So you kind of got to look at what they're interested in. Um, it's not all just you need to learn standards and you got to learn this Paul Chambers solo because it just doesn't work with every yeah. every kid. And um, sometimes the guidelines that are 
enforced in these sort of academia, you know, it just doesn't work. <laughs> for yeah, yeah, because it doesn't take into account. Individual kid. Yeah, Every, individual, isn't it? Everyone is, you got to try and cater it. So I, I always approach uh, what I teach them, like from a practical, here's, here's how I'm sort of making a living and I hope this can help. And also, yeah, let's, let's get down into the nuts and bolts of being a bass player, first of all. Um, yeah, and stuff like that. I mean, uh, also the things we talk about, I'm pretty big stickler on kind of over preparing. This probably goes back to my sports career. You know, like if you, if you run the 400 meter dash, then in, in practice, you're going to be doing a lot of 800s, yeah. you know, because that over prepares you for the sort of distance, you know, it's like, if you get really good at running 800s, then your lungs aren't going to, um, feel as impacted by a 400 even though the 400 in this example, it's, it's like one of the hardest races of all time. So it's, you know, but you know what I'm saying? So I, I try and in a jazz context, you got to deal with tempos. So I, I have, I have them doing extremely slow tempos and extremely fast tempos because generally speaking, I, from, from doing how many odd gigs now in my life, I, I found that, uh, in this kind of music, whether it's odd meter broken beat or straight ahead or whatever you want to call it, there's a there's a range that I've found is going to happen on gigs, and, and so if, if you go even slower than that, and even faster, even faster, yeah, then you're going to be pretty much prepared, you know. And also, you need stamina too, especially as like a double bass player, or even when you're playing in walking situations. So I try and get people doing, uh, I try and pe- get people walking or playing grooves for tempos for like 20, 30 minutes, yeah, so, so that they know that. You know, when you're in a bandstand, especially in jam situations, <laughs> if all 56 tenor players yeah. line up to do moments notice and, and they all take 10 courses, you can be there for a half hour. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, try and, I try and get them. Also, though, the, you know, after five minutes, have we dragged? Have we slowed down? You know, we want to have, yeah. want to have sol- solid time. I mean, you know, I don't want to have metronomic time, but I want to have solid time. I don't sound like a robot. Yeah, yeah. But you should have an awareness if you've dropped 30 beats here because. Then again, you know, who's band leader going to blame? They're, they're going to blame bass player. Like, yeah. Ooh, that bass player drags. It could be the drummer who's messing around so much. And, you know, but a lot of times bass player, I don't know in your experience, but it's bass player seems to be the most responsible for all that kind of stuff. Um, having the harmony and the time. So Especially I, when you're walking I, and stuff like that. You know what I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I always say, you know what? It's on us. If the band's, if the band's speeding up, it's because you're not... You, you got to hold the drummer back, or if if, if the drummer drags, you got to make sure that you keep that drummer. You got to drag him along. Got to drive him along, yeah. and if it means you got to talk to him or her on the break, then you got to do that. Yeah. But it's got to happen. You know, you're 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 responsible as the bass player to, to take care of all that stuff, and that's on you. Absolutely, man. So, so I, so I guess you know what I one of the things I have them do is play without any metronomes or anything just as much as we can do metronome exercises because yeah. uh that was a big thing with ray and a lot of the old school people you know um they didn't believe in metronomes at all because it was like it just wasn't around or whatever they just thought you know if you play if you start here you got to be here you know after 20 minutes yeah. you can do that all by yourself acapella so just have i have them do that i'll have them play a tempo for five minutes and we record it and then we listen back to the whole thing does that sound solid through the whole five minutes it's actually, it's, it's a very hard exercise, you know, even, yeah. even it's one of the ones that I roast myself with after all, you know, just, just playing acapella in time, all different times, see how, see how good 
you sound when you listen back to yourself. Sometimes it can be very unnerving. <laughs> yeah. yeah, recording yourself is always, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it it is course. what it is, isn't it? I heard you actually <laughs> went to, uh, you had a lesson or studied with Carol Kay at some point. What, yeah. How did yeah, that come yeah. about? I had, I had a whole, I had about uh, almost every two days for a month and a half or two months because I was in this thing called the, the Henry Mancini Institute, which was, which was incredible. It was, uh, I don't know. I think I got that when I got back in, right when I got back into music, soon I sent a tape to them um, and they accepted me in. And it was this band camp in uh, <laughs> Los Angeles, but it was more than a band camp. It was, I forget how long it was, but you were there and, and it was like, you played in an orchestra with, you know, some of the biggest Hollywood composers. Uh, and then you would go to a jazz thing and it would be like Herbie and Terrence Blanchard. Every second of every day you were pinching yourself. Yeah. You know, I played at the Hollywood Bowl with Shirley Horn and Diana Reeves in front of 18,000 people. I mean, that was an incredible thing and it, it, it stopped. But it was, it was one of the best things, I think, as a young person to get into yeah. if you were into kind of jazz and film music. Um, so she was one of, she was the electric teacher. Uh, there was, yeah, there was, there was guests that came in, but she was the, she was the in-house teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So she, uh, yeah, she, she was pretty, she's really nice, but she was, she'd really tell you off, you know, like about everything. (laughs) And, uh, and she's so funky too. Like, you know, she did every session in Los Angeles for 20, 25 years or something. Yeah. Uh, Like literally over 5,000 it's insane to look at her discography or, you know, her filmography and everything. And it's and the stories too. She, she's a, she's a pretty wild lady to hang yeah, out with. She's great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and she, she would pick too. She would play some of these classic funky lines and stuff. And it was like, wow, I, you're, you're that baseline, you know, like, yeah, yeah. you're that baseline on that theme song. And you could say that for a hundred shows that you'd been watching your whole life. It's like, so yeah, and um, she she noticed like one of the things she noticed was that I was um, when I would go up because she she's actually a great uh, jazz guitarist too, yeah, like no, yeah. great yeah. lines and real real beautiful harmony and stuff. So we were working on some solo stuff, and um, she hit me to bring in my thumb around the neck when I went up like at the octave, I guess, on the electric. Because I was kind of, I think it was also because the bass I had, it didn't work so well with my body, so I was kind of wrenching my arm around like this, and then I brought my thumb around, and then it kind of just skated all the way up to the triple octave. Um, yeah, you're almost using it like you'd use thumb technique on an upright, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't really fret. Sorry, I don't really fret uh, notes with it. I just kind of bring it around, just so I'm not cramped up up there. Oh, but okay. You know, so you're not actually, yeah, you're not pressing the actual notes down. Yeah. You've just got it sort of like floating out there. It's just floating, yeah. And it took, it took a little thing to get used to to actually pull the arm weight back, but no, that's just like how I do it. You know, I've played on some other bases, um, electric bases, where they, they carve the neck out better, and you don't need to do that at all. Yeah. It, it feels weird to do that. It feels more natural to do the other way, but that's just kind of what I – she got me into that. And I think because I revered her so much and it was such a cool situation, I kind of took it to heart. And yeah. That kind of changed my, my thing. Uh, but, yeah, she was she – was, <laughs> I wanted. To, I also want to talk about your record label as well because you know it's it's a huge part of what you want to do. 
um, what want to yeah. do. It's a huge part of what you do. It's like, where did the idea come from? Well, you know, it was, I never ever thought I'm going to have a record label of any kind. Um, and it was when I was 30, no, 29. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, when John Patitucci did his first solo album, he was 30 or 31, something yeah. like that. And, uh, you know, when you're, I guess when you're, well, certainly in the States and stuff, it was all very age conscious. Like, we want to get my album, my debut album up by the time I'm 22 or it's all over, all that kind of stuff. And I never, <laughs> like I said, like I told you, you know, I was moving around a lot. So I was trying to be more practical. And I was just, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to feel any pressure to do an album uh, until I feel like I have something to say or I, I have an idea for an album or I want to do an album, but I have to do it by the time John Pettitucci did it too. You know? like, so, <laughs> I can't remember if it was 29, 30, or 31 he did his first solo album. I could be completely wrong on that, but uh, whatever. Um, so yeah, once that came, actually I was ready to anyway. I was ready to, I felt like doing one at 26, but then I just was too busy and I couldn't get the music together and all that stuff. So I was just saving and because uh, I wanted to, I wanted to, have a have a lot of uh, a lot of musicians featured on the first one. More of a kind of not this conceptual album. Like here I am, I've, I've arrived at an artist. It's more. It's, it was more always about I'm going to get some of my favorite players of my generation, and I'm going to show you what I've been up to and what I like as a as a bass player and what I'm kind of into yeah. as a musician at this point in my life. Yeah. Kind of kind of like that's it, <laughs> you know, and. Um, I did all that and recorded it in New York, flew a bunch of people over from, from uh, London, uh, flew some guys up from L.A., went, went all out and spent my life savings on it. So then, like, okay, that all happened, and I did the production, and I even mastered it twice just, just to have two different <laughs> versions. I mean, yeah, uh, without a note then what I know now about uh, how you can uh, do a great album without blowing lots of money it would yeah. be great but I, I don't even want to say what I spent on it but it was it was all self-produced and self-finance and all that kind of stuff and then I <clears throat> started thinking well now what do I do what do I do? release this or what I want to build a tour so I want to do I want to definitely do a tour but I should have a label so I started sending it to like all the labels right and then um, and, and uh, because it's uh, it's it's definitely a contemporary jazz album. I, I shopped it to all the labels. You know, I sent it to Blue Note, to Verve, to Fresh Sound, to uh, just anything I could find. Um, Combed the internet, and I even sent it to other musicians who had started their own kind of label. Oh yeah, they're like, uh, it's just for my own music. Uh, I don't sign other acts. Sorry, you know. I, I, I found it everywhere. And I I got mostly. Uh, knows in terms of you know we like to start our project at this studio and we come in and produce and we do the thing thank you for um thinking of us but you know maybe in the future you know we like to do it all in-house so you got a different sound concept than us. so that that was quite of the labels that responded that was the kind of thing like i, I never heard back from uh, ecm <laughs> and, and actually I know why, because it's not the kind of album you would hear on EC Map yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, so the, 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 the offers I did get were, were basically, uh, yeah, we'll take that from you and we'll put it out and good luck with your life, you know? Uh, and I was like, okay, so 
how's that work then? So what do I get back? Oh, you don't get anything back. We're just going to basically take it. Um, you know, we might give you a, a certain amount of CDs for that, but you know, once we have it, there's going to be no royalties at all, um, ever. Wow. <laughs> oh, we need, we need your publishing too, and 50% of your publishing and all that stuff. So that was just kind of what was going around it. The, from the deals that I actually got of the labels that didn't say, actually, you know, we, we would want to have been involved in the whole thing. You're too far down the road for us to consider you. So I was like, no way. I got to do this on my own. So I, I, that is how it started. I thought, well, I'll make my own record label up then. That was it. It was no big aspirations of it doing anything more than me releasing my own music. Um, but I did sort of read about how to best do the DIY uh, label thing at that point, which was, uh, well, when I started thinking about it, it was 20, 2007, 2008. Um, so then <clears throat> I kind of took a few pieces from you know, this record label was doing. What, what would I like? I just set it up like that. And uh, um, it just sort of naturally developed with me releasing my friends because I made a nice website. I, got, I, I figured out how to get my own integrated e-commerce system built into the website where we can sell and not have to give any third-party companies a cut of the sales. Yeah. I hooked up the distribution um, and have always been kind of like le learned a lot about distribution, both digitally and physically, got that going. And, and, and you know what? It's just like my life as a musician has been one big improvisation and learning curve, you know, and it's like what I know now about releasing music on a record label and I – you know, I say record label, it's, I never feel like it's the same kind of record label like when you hear about Warner Brothers and stuff, because it's, first of all, not. It's not on the same level at all. But it's kind of a newer model. It's more of a, I like to call it a cooperative label. I kind of like um, cooperate as best we can with each artist and look at it that way. Like, we're a partnership. You know, we're going to try and, you know, album sales are what they are, especially in, you know, specialist or niche music like what I do. And um, I think I kind of, you know, I'm realistic with what we should spend and what we should, you know, will hopefully get back from it. And, you know, if everyone, I try and sign our artists that are actively touring for the most part and really, really go getting with their own live playing career because that kind of drives things, you know, to have the live sale uh, uh, drive drive the, the, the return on the, the album and kind of... Yeah work with each artist in their own way. Some, some artists have come up to me and they're like, I got all this. You know, I'll do all the investment. I just want a, a record label that's actively excited about releasing this music. Can we, can we work out a deal that works with that? So then, yeah, yeah. You know, I've done that. I've done things where I've completely banked the entire thing. So the label owns it. Uh, you know, when you go out and like, so I don't do so much. Um, mo most of it just comes into me from my network and my you know, oh, hey, I see John's on your album. You know, can I lay this on you? Yeah. Uh, it's been like that kind of thing. It would be nice to have a whole uh, outreach department, but, you know, it's it's just a kind of, it's always been a grassroots, sort of all about the music thing. It's just one of those things, you know. Uh, it grew out of that, and then I really got into the label thing because it's, it's fun. I, I don't know why it's fun, but it is. For, like, artists that sort of, like, guys, that, guys or girls that might be listening to this, if they... Why should they, I'm trying to think about this question, um, what benefits, because we're in this sort of like this world of self-publication now where people can publish their music and put it on iTunes and put it wherever they want, what, what benefit do you think they sh would have by um, 
like going to a label like yours or somebody in that kind of that model of what you you know your model of of record label it's, it, it is a business that aspires to sell music ultimately like on paper um i i i, I kind of realized that if i'm going to put effort and energy into it I need to turn an income. So then I got into how I could possibly make that happen post Napster, post now post Spotify, all that kind of stuff. I mean, so I would say, like I say to any artist who comes to me, like, you know, you're coming to me, but do you know why? Do you know what a label does? Like what, what benefit does it have for you to have me and my label in your life? Yeah. And so that, those are the questions you have to answer to people. And I guess uh, the, an the, the answer that I can give them is uh, the label's outreach capabilities, um, the, you know, like the, e the email list, uh, the, the social media outreach, the push we have, the, the, the worldwide distribution network, yeah. the contacts we have with other labels and other territories that we've established now in the last decade that we can get licensed deals with them to to do like a Japanese version of the album which can give you a nice royalty kickback like these are all like our contacts you know within the industry our press hookups you know now um, you know when we email uh, certain you know publications around the world when we send our, our press blasts out they go oh it's a whirlwind release well we trust that so yeah. so there, there's a there's a you know this whole brand thing it's uh, there's a there's a level of trust within the industry already even in six years that I think my label has, and, and that, that adds value to some people. Some musicians are like, you know what, I don't know what to do. I can't be bothered to even figure out how to upload this on whatever site. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't want to monitor it. I love, you know, we give the artists statements uh, on the quarter, quarterly statements where they have everything broken down and they can see what's happened with it. And they, they appreciate that because it's, they don't have to go, okay, now let me log into my Amazon account. So there's, there's like headache yeah. saving things. Um, but I think, I think one of the, one of the reasons people like coming to whirlwind or, or, or have been excited about it is because we're really excited about all the music we release. It's, I look at every release almost like it's my own release. I get really involved in the whole production process. Uh, you know, um, and, and we put, we put as best, little product, whatever you want to call it, together. Now, sort of like, now you've talked about why people should be like looking for labels like, like yours if they want to get, go down that route. If we switch it, what kind of artists are you looking for? Are you looking for, like, I know you said sort of like touring bands, but are you looking for bands that are like fully formed, um, they've got like Facebook pages up and all, all, the, all of the bells and whistles before you yep. actually want to take them on? One thing when you just asked that question that you made me realize is that the other the other thing a record label can do is actually invest in you monetarily. Like if you if some artists go look, I've I've got to the point where I've mastered this and I have no more money left. If you like this music, can you can you print it and can you do a press campaign? Uh, can you publicize it for me? Can you do some marketing with it? And if we like the music, we can now do that. You know, we got we got the the, the labels at a point now where it can go out and do that kind of stuff. So that can also be real sort of monetary value other than just like the, so oh, I like what your label's about, yeah. those kind of thing. But um, so what I look for in, in um, you know, I've based the entire label off off my own playing career, which is also why it's called Whirlwind. It's one of my nicknames is because I, well, there's there's a few reasons why my name's Whirlwind. It's like uh, my nickname's been Whirlwind. Is what, one thing I love though is improvisation. My favorite thing as a musician is to improvise. Yeah. Um, so so every album so far, 
improvisation has been one of the one of the important aspects of the album. Maybe not the most important on a few of them, on some of the more vocal ones, but on most of the albums, improvisation is the core. It's there. Yeah, so yeah. it's there. So so improvisation is the guiding thread between all the level, all the all the albums, and also I what I hope is there's a sound cohesion too. Even if it's a different mix and mastering engineer, uh, most of it is by two two different teams, uh, like eighty five percent. But there has been a few jobs where they've brought me a mastered album, and it just it's like wow, well this naturally fits in with the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the, the whirlwind sound. So of course I like it. But in terms of artists, I I like people who are pretty. Um, like, well, I don't judge them on what style of music they play at all. But what I like is um, people who are uh, really solid in the in the way they play their instrument. In terms of straight up, like, what artists do uh, do I like? It's artists that inspire me. Um, artists that kind of share the same philosophies about music that I do, even if we never even talk about it. You know, you can kind of hear when you can hear when someone. It's kind of on the same page, you know. It's it's like, do I want to play with this person? Sure. Well, then if, if I want to play with this person, chances are I'm going to want to release their music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's kind of like it's pretty organic when it comes to that, and it, it kind of speaks for its. It, it kind of yeah, it it just naturally happens a lot of it. I mean, I can't. I get massive amounts of submissions to the label website, uh, you know, every month, and I can't even. I don't have time to even check any of this stuff out to, to tell you the truth because I have so many jobs <laughs> happening now. It's really not like I don't have an A and R department or whatever they're called. You know, it's like yeah. not like that. It really just it, it comes into the label. And then you know, I'll be on a tour with some some with some band, and then they'll be like, "Oh, you do a label?" And then they'll they'll look out and they're like, "Hey, that looks really great." Well, I got this release, and I don't really know what to do with it. So, can we talk? You know, you know. Having said all this, it's it, it's entirely valid. For an artist to release all on their own and do all the work themselves, if they're if they're if they're wired to do it, you know. Yeah, I think my, like yeah, I think there's never been a better time for both. You know, really, I think yeah. obviously the old school record companies maybe they're, you know, you know they've suffered a little bit, but I think for for what you're doing, it's great, and I think for guys that want to do it on their own, it's great as well. Yeah, also, like, you know, we, I like to look at the company as just as much an artist development company as it is a, a, a record label. Yeah. Like we really get involved with the artist's career and try and help develop their career and bring their music and their profile to a wider fan base. Uh, that that's just as important to me that, that music gets out there as it is like you know for numbers of units sold in HMV. Is, is this more than a full time job for you? Is what? Is this more than a full time job? Because obviously you're playing, but uh, you've got uh, this as well. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I don't even want to talk about outrage, but <laughs> I, I have uh, I have like I have staff at the label now, which yeah. is uh, I have I have two pretty key personnel that um, do quite a lot of the uh, the stuff that would take me eighty hours a week that I would sit in my office and do when I was getting it together. Yeah. So I've outsourced quite a bit now as the label has earned more and, and can afford it. Um, and there's some pretty big moves that I'm trying to make with the label uh, coming up that will hopefully get some further investment into it to even get more like full-time staff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's it's growing at at the rate I can deal with it and the rate it can afford to grow. Um, 
Man. So, well, well let's, what I'll do is I'll hook everybody up to your website from the podcast page, obviously, MikeJanish.com, isn't it? Yeah, dot com. Yeah, yeah. MichaelJanish.com. Yep. Yeah, and it's WhirlwindRecords.com, is it? Yeah, <laughs> WhirlwindRecordings. WhirlwindRecordings.com. And then yeah. also... I'll, I was going to be records, but then I realized there was a German uh, death metal label of the same name, so I decided <laughs> to not go there. Yeah, yeah, don't go there. And I'll also put like videos, like videos of you playing. Is it down in Ronnie's where you've you've got the jazz bass out? You know, Nick came and recorded you, didn't? Oh, he? that was uh, that was um, that was uh, at the pizza. Oh, right, right pizza check. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put them up on the page so people can check them out and. You know, and come and hunt you down. Have you got a Facebook that you want to shoot out to anybody? Yeah, I have a relatively new Facebook page. I think it's just it's Michael P. Janish, and I'm, I've been on Twitter for a while. Uh, Twitter is uh, M. P. Janish. My middle name's Paul, so all the Michael Janishes were. Well, I'll tell worked. you what. What I'll do is I'll link them all up to the page, so nobody needs to remember anything. <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. Mike, thanks for hanging out, man. Okay, guys, hopefully you enjoyed that interview with Mike. Again, you can find him at the websites that we mentioned at the end of the interview, but you can also have just linked those up on the podcast page itself as well. So if you listen to this on scottsbasslessons.com, you'll find it there. If you want to go and listen to it on scottsbasslessons.com, where I've put, you know, videos of Mike so you can check him out, just go to scottsbasslessons.com and navigate to the podcast and you'll find it right there. And remember as well, if you're an Academy member, guys, you can also also watch the entire video version of that interview too. All of our podcasts are filmed as well and we do release them as videos for Academy members. If you're not an Academy member, make sure you go over and check it out at the website. It's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world. The step-by-step courses, live seminars every week with some of the best bass educators on the planet, live streamed straight to you every Monday. We've got the largest online bass educational community in the more and tons tons more and there's no better time to try it out either because the redesign kicks in uh we're hoping for mid to well really sort of like yeah early to mid november when that does kick in the enrollment price for the annual deal will be going up so this is the cheapest it will ever be so you can get a 30 day free trial if you go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash 30 day and that's three zero day okay you won't find it anywhere else on the site um it's just for you know subscribers of scott's bass lessons that are checking in with us uh, every week so it's a special one for you guys it's scottsbasslessons.com forward slash 30 day and if you do join give me a shout in the forum shoot me a pm i would absolutely love to hear from you now next week we've got uh, Simon Little in. Now, Simon is a bass player for one of my favourite bands in the world, so it was fantastic interviewing him. Um, the band is called The Divine Comedy. I've got no idea whether they're big in the States or the rest of the world, but, they, but they're but they big in the UK. <laughs> so that helps. That's why I know them. But yeah, I've been checking out The Divine Comedy stuff for literally for years. I, I think the songwriter, Neil Hannon, is one of the best songwriters out there. Um, their stuff is well worth checking out and Simon Little does a absolute stellar job of holding down the low end for those guys and he's got a really interesting story as well because he got that gig he actually had to leave music school to do that gig and and 
and met the guy who got the gig through on like a pantomime or something like some crazy little gig and it's just a really great example of why you should do all the gigs that come your way because you never know who you're going to meet um, so anyway look out for that podcast coming next week guys and as always take it easy and i'll see you in the shed